The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. Please lower this million-dollar bond so he can get out and attend Sarah's memorial service. It wasn't until that day on October that I felt like something was wrong. I did not think at that point that there was a murder case. When he first got there and getting him and bringing him into the room and him wanting her to, you know, get her all the way into the bedroom um, so she wasn't still in the bathroom. That's really all I remember. That doesn't mean that that is what happened. It is Ryan's perception of what happened based on her history of falling asleep. I found her. I wasn't taking them to this, this, and this. And nor should they have been. They should have been there to save her life. And that's what I hope they were doing. This is Episode 5, The Prosecution Rests. Last episode, we left off where the prosecution brings in sleep expert Dr. Anissa Marie Doss, who basically shot down the idea that Sarah could fall asleep in the tub. She said it was virtually impossible to fall asleep and not wake up without the influence of alcohol or something external. And remember, the only thing they found in Sarah's system was caffeine. Ryan's lawyer got her to agree that a single epileptic seizure could also be fatal and that it could be impossible to detect on an autopsy. Overall, obviously, this is the prosecution's witness and it supports the prosecution's theory that Sarah didn't fall asleep, but we weren't so sure. So this is where we actually brought in one of our own experts. And we were lucky enough to have forensic sleep expert Dr. Mark Pressman work with us. I am a PhD psychologist, actually an experimental psychologist, but I've been doing uh, sleep-related stuff for about 42 years. I do a significant amount of forensic work. I have a a book out on legal aspects of sleepwalking and how to evaluate it, how to appear in court, what is reliable, valid sleep science. Still get a lot of people, they testify and you look at it and you say, well, yeah, that's true, you know, in 1955, but it's not true now. And there's a lot of problems with uh, how sleep science uh, is sort of brought forward. The textbooks are still quoting 1960. When there's 20 articles since then, it just never has been brought forward. I mean, that's what we have to do with all science, right? Is the science reliable? Are we talking about a junk science? So Dr. Pressman, after evaluating this case, he really gave us two possibilities that he think might, might be at play here. So let's hear the first. I'm no expert on, on drowning, although I was somewhat doubtful about the certainty of the, of the prosecution sleep experts her level of certainty that this couldn't have happened. Uh, the real question is, uh, I know the defense said she was sleepy and she was taking opportunities to take naps, which is certainly a, a young, uh, otherwise healthy person should not be sleepy and having to take naps. 
And the, the defense sleep expert said something about sleep apnea. I think that's very unlikely in a young woman. They, they typically don't get sleep apnea unless there's something very abnormal in their upper airway. In my mind, there were two possibilities. Uh, and I, I would disagree with the, uh, the defense sleep expert that sleep apnea is the most common reason for being sleepy. It certainly is very common. But uh, the most common reason is insufficient sleep. I mean, Americans are a sleep-deprived people. They burn the candle at both ends. Something's got to give. It's sleep usually that gives. So someone of her age, 24, someone of her age, 24, really does need eight hours of sleep a night. Just want to point out here, he's disagreeing with both the prosecution and the defense. Just keep that in mind. Okay. The trick about sleep deprivation that most people don't realize is that sleep loss accumulates. So say you need eight hours of sleep, but you're only getting six. It's two missing hours that you should have biologically in order to feel awake and alert. Okay. But that two hours goes into sort of a a bucket, the sleep debt bucket. And if the next night you get only sleep another six hours, you get another two hours into the sleep debt bucket. And at the end of the week, you essentially have the equivalent of 24 hours of sleep deprivation. And if you do that for weeks, then you can be grossly sleep deprived. And the further trick is that people lose, they lose their sense of what it is to be alert and what it is to be sleepy. So they can be actually extremely sleepy, but it's almost as if they've adapted to this, their new state. You know, I'm very alert. I mean, in my heyday, when I was seeing 10 patients a day, I occasionally would have patients literally fall asleep while I'm talking to them. And then they'd wake up and I'd say, uh, well, first of all, they didn't know they fell asleep. Second of all, they would claim they are as alert as anyone. So the victim in this case could have been grossly sleep deprived. I mean, I should say we don't have the evidence of that yet, although feeling sleepy and dozing off and whatnot are signs of that. So I think that basically I would have advised the uh, defense lawyer to go with hypotheticals and to add in any any evidence that was there, certainly about her being excessively sleepy. Um, she certainly should not be sleepy. There should be a reason for it. And then the question is, well, and I think I, I would have advised him to strongly challenge this uh, evidence about how the sleepiness would not be sufficient. Okay, so he's giving this one possibility of extreme sleepiness. And uh, in fairness, this was a theme. Mm -hmm. This wasn't just Ryan saying that. There were multiple people who described Sarah as being sleepy. So It's a viable explanation. It's viable, you know. We can't say anything for sure, but it also gives us a second explanation, which the prosecution actually addressed. There are hundreds of metabolic and other kinds of things that could be or thyroid. It could be a million different things, but and the other one is narcolepsy, which comes to mind immediately, and, and obviously the uh, the prosecution expert addressed. There, there are two ty- two types of narcolepsy, and, and actually, it's a lot more, narcolepsy is a lot more common than than that expert let on. There, there's certainly a couple hundred thousand narcoleptics running around the United States, but it's also different levels. It's also genetic based to a lot of it. So question is, do any family members, blood relatives have anything similar? It typically manifests for the first time, usually in adolescence, okay, early 20s, first time. 
And obviously, people who have uh, true narcolepsy have a tendency, they sort of feel sleepy, but they also tend to like doze off, like, you know, boom, they're asleep. And importantly, they have a series of four other symptoms usually. The important symptom here is something called cataplexy, P-L-E-X-Y. And narcoleptics are the only patients who have this. And what cataplexy is, is a sudden loss of all voluntary muscle tone, your arms, your legs, your neck, okay, not your heart, not your lungs, nothing you need to stay alive. But basically, you become sort of a floppy person. You can't prop yourself up. You, can't, you couldn't, you know, if she had a cataplectic attack in the bathtub, she could have just sunk under the water and been unable to protect herself. And, and the cataplex, I should say, is, happens while you're awake. So she would have been awake, sinking, and uh, you could see how terrifying that might be. I mean, you're sinking under the water, and you can't save yourself. And unfortunately, that kind of terror would just make the cataplexy worse. But usually, it's triggered by uh, emotion, laughter, anger, surprise, uh, who knows, but I came across a URL about like a 13-year-old uh, with diagnosed narcolepsy, and she was learning how to swim. And she got into the pool, and she managed to swim across from one side to the other of the pool, and she was very happy, right? And she had a cataplectic attack, and she started to sink under the water. Fortunately, her family was there and pulled her out. Amy, I don't know about you, but I was terrified after this interview. Yes, I absolutely agree. I'm seriously, I was thinking of all these situations that could happen, and I learned a lot from him. Yeah, I agree. And he's giving us the, this idea that this is a lot more common than we think, and you might totally miss the signs. We're not going to find any cases of narcoleptics who drown. We may find them, people with the diagnosis of narcolepsy who drowned, but since there's there's nothing to be found on an autopsy about cataplexy, the thing about cataplexy, the uh, if I might, the prosecution expert basically said that, well, there's no evidence for this in her history, but that's not unusual with narcoleptics. So I don't remember what the usual length of time is from onset of symptoms to diagnosis, but it's many, many years. Usually something has to happen, okay? Something dangerous self-injury has to happen before they come to attention or they start losing jobs, right? They fall asleep at work or they, they get in trouble with their family because they're always dozing off at the dinner table or they fall asleep while driving, all those kinds of things. And it may be that there are people in, in, in the victim's life who may have seen episodes and they may have seen episodes of cataplexy, but that's also very difficult to pick up because there are different levels of cataplexy. There's global, meaning you literally fall to the floor, almost like you're having a seizure, except you're awake. Or you can have it just, you have it in your in your legs, in your knees. So I, I've seen this many times. It's very weird looking. They have a cataplectic attack and they their knees buckle. And they, just start, they start to go down. And then all of a sudden, two seconds later, they get it back and they're up. I mean, I will say this. I've learned a lot. I now see some possibilities, but this doesn't bring me like any closer to a decision in this case. No, but I think at the very least, it definitely introduces reasonable doubt. It certainly does. Well, for me, anyway, let's get back to the prosecution's case. Two other witnesses raised the question of whether or not Ryan lied about Sarah's positioning in the bathtub. Remember, he had said that she was face down during the 911 call to the police. 
but he told a nurse that she was face up. One of the strongest arguments that the prosecution made that seemed to resonate with the jury and with the public was Ryan Widmer on the 911 call stated that his wife was face down in the bathtub. Then later at the hospital, when they were still trying to save her life, he spoke to a nurse who swears that he said the opposite, that she was face up. And I think most people interpret any change in the suspect's story, so to speak, they think that is suspicious. Can't even keep your story straight. But then there's the interpretation of it. Isn't it easy to just misspeak for anybody, especially somebody who's in a traumatic situation? So once again, we have an absolute piece of evidence. Yes, this was stated on the 911 call, but is it suspicious or is it not? Doyle Burke also testified that Ryan said she was face down shortly after talking to the nurse. Now, Ryan, we talked about this, said that he meant Sarah was under the water, but facing up and that he just minced his words. Which people do in traumatic events. Yeah, for us, we already said it's possibly just a total innocent mistake of speech and a figure of speech. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, depends on which way you view it, but I'm with Janice on this one. Yep, me too. Halfway through the day, the prosecution asked for a recess and they were granted one. After the recess, the star witness was brought into the courtroom. I describe in my book, it was the star witness of the whole trial. It was the weirdest thing because this bathtub had this eerie quality to it. Everybody kind of stood up and craned their necks to look inside the tub. And it was even creepier looking because the fingerprint dusting powder used to try to find hand streaks or fingerprints or whatnot was black against the white surface of the tub. So it just looked all dirty and smudgy. And it was really sinister looking and just almost have this creepy energy that emanated from this bathtub. And people were transfixed. They could not take their eyes off of this bathtub. It was clear that the bathtub had a strong impact on the courtroom. Ryan recalls that moment. It was dramatic when they brought it in. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. It looked horrible because of all the, the fingerprint dust and all the stuff they had done to it. I mean, it was a, it was a white tub that was pretty much ashy charcoal colored. Uh, because of all the stuff, uh, so it looked horrible. But I think there was no evidentiary value to it. When they brought the tub in and <clears throat> they brought criminalist Hillard in, who had been a 35-year veteran of the Cincinnati Police Division, he was the one who examined the tub, and he said that he basically found, he had like five conclusions, all right? He said that he found a four-print arm, probably from a male, based on its size and the hair follicle impressions. Mm -hmm as kind of an overlay on top of some semicircle impressions. And these semicircle Im impressions corresponded with toiletries that were lined up on the bathtub ledge. He also said he found fingerprint streaks that appeared to be made by a pair of hands in a downward motion on the tub back wall at the faucet end of the tub. And he said they appeared to be from a smaller person, possibly a female. He found marks that left swaths or like kind of like where you like a rubbing mm -hmm. kind of motion where the bathtub had apparently been wiped clean. So a wiping motion and partial palm prints all over the tub. So, Amy, what does this conclusion say to you? That tub was in use in a house where people lived. That is all it says to me as well. This says nothing. I mean, if I understand, the prints couldn't be linked to any specific person, right? They were like too smudged. I know it wouldn't even matter if they could be, but I'm saying, number one, there was not enough detail to even say like, 
Because he says, oh, those are female finger marks right. on the side. Like, you don't know that. I'm going to call junk science on this one. All of it. Yep. Okay. But I also would say, I bet you the jury took this as scientific. Well, because they had that tub, too. And yes, I mm-hmm. bet, I'm sure it did make an impression on them. When Braley testified, they brought the tub back in again. Two main points from his testimony, again, uh, dry conditions and the bathtub markings. By the way, this is going to be a huge point of contention because the search warrant made no mention of the tub. Well, that's a problem. It's a serious problem. They knew that the police made a big mistake by not listing on the search warrant the bathtub as something that they were looking to seize. You would think that in the bathtub drowning case that you would list the bathtub among the items that you're planning to take. It was not listed, and therefore, they could have challenged that. However, the defense decided they didn't like the public perception that might be created by a headline that would say, defense tries to suppress evidence in bathtub case. They didn't want it to look like they were being dishonest or hiding anything. And they didn't think the bathtub was that important to the case. And I think that they they agree would agree with me that that was a mistake. There are mistakes made in every trial. And I do think Ryan's lawyers were very good. They were very good and very passionate in defending him. But I think they would agree with me that that was a mistake because it stuck in people's minds. It allowed people to just envision this murderous scenario over and over and over. Every time you're looking at that bathtub and seeing the black streaks in it. I agree with Janice. I think that was a definite... All theatrics. But I think that was definitely a tactical mistake by the defense. Oh, to not. Yeah. But what happened was, I think when Braley applied finger dusting to the tub, he said it revealed two sets of, you know, fingerprints on the backside. So that's why he... That was his justification for taking the tub into evidence. He said that he felt no moisture where Sarah was and only saw droplets in the tub. All items he said around the tub were dry. On cross-examination, though, it was shown... Guess how long it was after the incident that Braley showed up? Braley wasn't the first one on the scene. No, Bishop was the first one on the scene. So guess how long after? Probably long enough for things to dry. Yeah, it was about two and a half hours after the 911. So what do you expect? Everything would be dry anyway. Yes, and a forensic scientist working on the case also showed that the carpet samples were wet and they had soaked through, which contradicts the statement that everything was dry. (laughs) Okay, so. I mean, we're not going to get too caught in these weeds here because we have other witnesses. One of them is Dr. Becker, and this was the dentist Sarah worked for. And his was kind of a mixed bag here because he testified that Sarah had asked about retirement and life insurance. So that seems indicative. If Ryan knew that Sarah was getting life insurance, you know, maybe maybe there was like some type of financial motive here. And he also testified that, yes, she went and she slept in her car and she often did that. But it was planned and not like unexpected, like we heard from this sleep expert. Mm -hmm. Probably didn't. This testimony doesn't sound like it was the strongest. You know what was I thought what I took away from this. One other thing that he said, he said that Sarah said she felt sick that day. Mm. And so I took that to be. But the prosecution's not going to mention that. Well, no. So that's why I'm saying on cross that. Yeah, this was this came out on cross. Okay. At the end of the day, Sarah's mom took the stand. Um, Sarah's mom that said she had no medical history, no problems, no sleepiness. And she also said that Ryan had money issues, which I hadn't heard anywhere else. That's interesting. So I asked Ryan about these issues, and here's what he said. I was shocked. I mean, I'd sit there, and 
I could see lies that were going on, and she, she knows there's nothing that should have made her say that. I mean, I don't even know. I don't know what her what her reasoning to say it was, but there was a story um, she told about the credit card and how I was checking on her finances and this or that or something. But she completely embellished the meaning and how it truly happened. Sarah had Internet access at her work, but it wasn't working, and he had me checking her statements for So I just happened to check it one day, and her mom and her, her were out shopping. Well, she'd spent like $100 or something. And I always joked with her that you can't go to Target without spending $100. It was just a running joke. I mean, seriously, there was nothing. I mean, she made more money than me. So, you know, I never tried to control what she spent. We could, he could afford to spend $100. It was just a joke. And I called her and I was like, what are you doing spending $100 at Target? We obviously laughed it off and that was it. And her mom used that story and changed it to like I was mad about it. So... And regardless, it's a hundred dollars. I mean, it's not like, you know, you're not talking about tens of thousands of dollars or anything where it would have been something drastic. It was a hundred dollars. And I just thought like those type of things is like, come on, like really? She made some comment that we called her each other names that she couldn't even repeat. She was the only person that knew Sarah and I that said we fought. My only thing I can come up with in my head was obviously. I think I told you that Charlie wanted to wait until Dr. Spitz came back with his findings before he was going to talk to her. And I think by that point, obviously, she didn't want to hear it. After Sarah's dad passed away, she was dating an old friend of hers that was a Middletown, Ohio police officer. I believe they were just using the information, what their doctors had told them or whatever. And I think him being a good old boy cop, you know, kind of persuaded their opinions a little bit or something. I don't know. I can't imagine it's not, I mean, it's not easy for me to not have an answer of what happened to her. So I can only imagine how hard it would be for her mom to lose her 24-year-old daughter and not have an explanation why. But shortly after Sarah's death, up until October, she told me what she knows I had nothing to do with. So I don't know where the change came in. Following the conclusion of Sarah's mother's testimony, the state called Dr. Updegrove to the stand. And he is the person, if you remember, who conducted Sarah's autopsy the morning after she died. He said that Sarah had bruising not consistent with CPR and talked about three other injuries that were caused by pressure or blunt force. He actually suggested the possibility of a sleeper hold. You know what a sleeper hold is? When you, from behind? A sleeper hold is just a choke hold that prevents blood from flowing to the brain. And so one can be rendered unconscious this way. When you come from... Behind yeah. and you put your arm around. Would that someone's be considered neck? like a blitz attack? Also, no. Actually, I don't think it'd be a blitz because I think Sarah was probably like he's suggesting that maybe that evolved. Like he kind of oh, got that her. Up. He didn't sneak up on her. Exactly. Gotcha. I, I don't think he could sneak up on her uh-huh. in, the, in the bathtub situation, mm-hmm. but that it evolved into that. And he cited the following injuries as evidence of blunt force trauma. He said a lot more and did a lot more, but I'm not the best. I would say to summarize these findings, so I'm going to turn to our pathologist who consulted with us who can explain this a little bit better. And we were very lucky to work with someone who is beyond qualified. My name is Marianne Hamill. I'm a licensed physician and a forensic pathologist, and I practice in the Mid-Atlantic region. I'm board certified by the American Board of Pathology in anatomic, clinical, and forensic pathology. To date, I've performed approximately 4,000 autopsies. I'm also a Fulbright Scholar in Police Research and Criminal Justice at the Law Department of the London School of Economics. 
and I co-curate and manage the Death Under Glass art exhibition of microscopic images of human tissue. So I do a couple of things. I work for the Newark Medical Examiner's Office uh, as a per diem physician a couple of days a month. I also work occasionally for the Montgomery County Medical Examiner's Office, which is right outside of Philly. And I run a fairly robust consult service, um, Jersey Shore Forensics. And so I do uh, civil work, criminal work. I've recently picked up a lot of public defender stuff. Um, I work with the Innocence Project out of Rutgers Law School. And I'm a member of the VDOC Society, which is a cold case squad that uh, operates out of Philadelphia and meets once a month. I'll just say I was excited that Marianne agreed to come on board. Yeah, I think she she's, sounds like a rock star. Yeah, she really is. And she was kind enough to summarize Dr. Updegrove's findings for us. Dr. Updegrove performed an autopsy on Sarah's body on August 12, 2008. And I'm going to summarize his findings in three basic categories. The first one was evidence of medical intervention. She has an intravenous line in the left side of her neck, and there's a lot of subcutaneous hemorrhage around that. She's intubated, so she has a tube down her throat to help her breathe, although it is misplaced. It's actually in her esophagus. He also finds that she has an unsuccessful attempt at putting in an IV in her right antecubital fossa. That's the inside of her right elbow. She has some injuries. So she has a small half-inch bruise of the right side of her forehead at the hairline. She has some lacerations of her, the insides of her lips. She has three bruises of the right side of her scalp. They measure one and a half, half, and a quarter inch in greatest dimension, respectively. On internal examination, she has a large hemorrhage of the left side of her neck that involves the fat and muscle underneath her skin, and that's about four inches in greatest dimension. She's got a couple other small bruises and abrasions. There's a two-inch bruise of her upper left chest. He cuts into the back of her neck and finds a one-inch faint contusion or bruise in the, the soft tissue in the back of her neck. She has a, a small abrasion of her left armpit, three-quarters of an inch, and she has a two-and-a-half-inch intramuscular contusion of her anterior chest. The third category is evidence of drowning. So her lungs are heavy and congested. She's got frothy fluid in her airway, which is typical of drowning, and she's got fluid in her ethmoid sinus. So the ethmoid sinus is um, an air-filled space in one of the facial bones. And in people who drown, sometimes you can insert a needle into the sinuses and pull out fluid. Not in every case of drowning, but sometimes. And he did find it in Sarah's case. So intervention, injury, and drowning. Those are basically Dr. Updegrove's findings. Doesn't sound good, though, right? Sounds like signs of maybe a struggle of some sort. Right, because you're, you're just be. hearing a lot, and the mm -hmm. jury's hearing a lot about bruising and hemorrhaging, and yeah. it sounds very damning, if you ask me. But he's not going to be the only expert, the medical expert, to weigh in here. We have a couple. On the day five of trial, uh, and the courtroom was even more packed, the prosecution called its, I believe, 20th and final witness. And this 20th, was, wow. Yeah. Dr. Charles Jeffrey Lee. He was also a forensic pathologist who would later be seen as kind of a tiebreaker between the defense and the prosecution. And the defense had Warner Spitz, is that right? Defense had Warner okay. Spitz, and we'll definitely talk about his mm -hmm. um, findings. Now, Dr. Lee did not conduct an autopsy, but he reviewed all the records. And he spent about 90 minutes listing reasons why he thought Sarah's injuries were the result of foul play, possibly having been grabbed by the neck and or possibly being knocked out. 90 minutes, that's a long time for someone who... Didn't actually conduct the autopsy, just reviewed the findings? I mean, I don't know if he spent all 90 minutes on oh, that. Okay. It might have been, you know, gotcha. discussing mm -hmm. the extent of her injuries, mm -hmm. but it didn't look good. But I'm also seeing like a grab by the neck possibly be, I, I don't, I see 
a lot of different theories yeah. here, but the prosecution can't really nail down what exactly happened. And so on cross-examination, Rickers pushed Dr. Lee for a theory. It's always the prosecution show at first. So I'm used to feeling like, wow, that doesn't sound good for this guy. Wow, that sounds pretty bad. I'm kind of used to that. But what was weird about this trial was the fact that there were some things that didn't seem to go quite as well for the prosecution, even during their own portion of presenting the evidence. For example, a key moment in the first trial for me, particularly, was when the prosecution's own witness said that he believed Sarah could have been drowned, not just in the bathtub, but possibly in the sink or in the toilet. And I remember people in the courtroom kind of being surprised by that. And I know I was. And also the document known as a bill of particulars is an important legal document. That document, it says to the the defendant and the jury, this is how we think this crime was accomplished. The original charging document in a felony case is the indictment. And this is then, indictment would say, you're accused of murder. And then the bill of particular says, here is how we allege you committed the murder, whether it was with a gun, with a knife, etc. And in this case, it said that he drowned her in the bathtub. It did not say anything about any other place, such as a toilet, such as a sink. And then I noticed. I think it was a day or two later, I was always, always at the clerk's office looking at every piece of paper that was filed in this case. There was an amended bill of particulars filed, which said that Ryan allegedly drowned her in the bathtub or other water-containing fixture. And I was kind of like, whoa. To me, that seemed to signal they had a person on trial for murder and they had no earthly idea of what actually happened in that bathroom. That was my concern. And then I kind of played devil's advocate with myself. I said, well, maybe this is just a technicality or, you know, they're just kind of covering their bases here. Maybe they really do know, but then that one witness kind of messed things up for them. So they're just trying to play their cards right. But I had a very, very serious concern right at that moment that they didn't really know what happened. And yet they had this person on trial for murder. And that bothered me and concerned me. Sink or toilet? Yes. Well, that's new. That's absolutely new. This had never been suggested before. And I think that Ryan's lawyer was able to debunk it. And the prosecution always had the theory that she drowned in the bathtub, hence why they brought in the bathtub. Always. So where does the toilet and this didn't come from the toilet, especially, too. I mean, I think this is a little silly, to be honest. What do you think that's about? You think he's just like throwing darts at the wall? Kind of. And after Lee, this was the last witness. So wow, the prosecu- they must have been pissed to end on that note. Let's hear from Janice on what her thoughts were after the prosecution rested. The strongest evidence that the prosecution had, I thought, initially, was probably the medical evidence because juries want to believe what the medical experts are saying. And the medical experts for the prosecution said these bruises that appeared on Sarah's neck after her death were 
suspicious signs of trauma. Someone had put their hands around her neck or on her neck somehow, possibly to hold her down. But yet the other evidence that came out was that the medics said that, yes, they had to manipulate her throat and neck to try to intubate her. And that, oh, by the way, they had like five failed attempts to put this breathing tube down her throat. And I think that created a lot of questions for people who were wondering whether it was possible that those injuries could have been made during the resuscitation efforts. But the jurors who convicted Ryan voted to convict did not believe that when they took that into account, along with everything else that they thought didn't seem to add up. The dry bathroom scene seemed suspicious, even though there was no sign of cleanup, the apparent movement somehow of Sarah's body. But one of the things that I later came to really, really wonder about, yes, it is the conventional wisdom that if a guy or gal who is accused, quote unquote, can't keep his or her story straight, then of course, he or she must be guilty. But it became apparent to me that there were other deeper ways of looking at the evidence. If, for example, Ryan Widmer did kill Sarah, how does it benefit him to say that she's face up or face down? How does that benefit the killer? I've never been able to answer that question. If he purposely changed his story, why would he do it? And how would it benefit the killers, assuming that he is the one who moved the body for some nefarious purpose, like to stage the scene or clean it up or, or make it look different? How does it help a killer to move a body three feet in a situation like this? It doesn't. Not that I can think of. And those are the questions that I think people were looking at this on a very, on the surface. They didn't take that extra step to think more critically about the evidence and to think, how would that benefit the killer? I, st- I would love to hear anybody who has an explanation for that because I have talked to hundreds of people about this case and I've never had anybody explain that to me, how it benefits Ryan Widmer to say she was face up versus face down, change that story or to move her as for some nefarious purpose. How would that benefit the killer to cover up anything? I don't think it would benefit the killer, but I think it just shows inconsistencies in a story. Yeah, I agree with her second part about the staging. Like that wouldn't benefit, but it wasn't because he intentionally changed his story. They were saying you couldn't remember the lie. Exactly. Yeah, so I think that part was mute. But she's also saying, I think she summarized like what the strongest evidence was and what she thinks people were considering. But With the prosecution's case being over with them resting, I also wanted to know, how did he think the trial went and how was he feeling at that point? The main part was Charlie basically got to him and said, we've been here for two, three weeks now and the prosecution is yet to tell us how or why or basically any reason of what happened that night. And he said, so what are we even doing here? And he brought his son, little Charlie, up Well, no, I take that back. Before he brought little Charlie up, he asked him, so what do you think happened that night? And he said, I think that he drowned her either frontwards, backwards, in the toilet, sink, or bathtub. And when he said that, I'm like, I mean, in my head, I'm just thinking, like, what did he just say? So basically, Charlie brought his son up, um, Charlie um, Jr., and tried to reenact what he was saying 
And at one point, Charlie had his sons basically back up against the jury box with his son kind of, you know, bending over, well, not bending over, but leaning backwards with his, with his face up and Charlie saying, so you're saying he could have bent her over like this and just ran water down her mouth or something like that, like from the sink? I mean, it's just them kind of trying to recreate the positionings it would take for something like that to happen. I just thought showed the complete ridiculousness of what he said. And obviously nothing that was on her body as far as any of the interior things that were on her body, the bruising and whatnot, matched up with anything even remotely close to what he was trying to say. I mean, if you're saying somebody killed somebody, I mean, we're talking about how serious of an of a accusation that is and you can't even say how you think somebody killed somebody and they didn't do that the whole time in my opinion and then him finishing off like that being the last part of their case i just thought it just completely showed the absurdity of what they were trying to do and then along with that i knew what we had coming in as far as our case so i knew yeah i felt confident but not completely confident again i mean i obviously still had those worries in the back of my mind so what did he have coming amy after the prosecution rested its case, it was Ryan's turn, and his team would head out of the gates strong with their first witness. Next time on Direct Appeal, was a rocky marriage the motive in Sarah's death? Not according to the defense. They begin calling their own witnesses, taking control of the narrative. And we'll bring in our own experts to weigh in on the case. Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.